On today's show, our guest is Jeremy Scott. Before I start with the intro to the show and introducing Jeremy, I want you to ask yourself just one question. And I want you to keep that question at the forefront of your mind while you're listening to this podcast. And the question is this, are you really living up to your potential? Our guest today struggled as a young child. Jeremy was born with a huge hole in his heart, but he was also born with a huge sense of adventure. And after many years of living and working abroad in the UK, he decided it was time to come home to New Zealand. There was only one catch. He was going to ride his bike home. And no, not a motorbike, a push bike. Yep, you heard it correctly. He rode his bike from the UK all the way back to New Zealand. This is an epic go all in story like no other. And Jeremy will inspire you to not only follow your dreams, but to live up to your true potential. Jeremy's a speaker, an athlete, an explorer, an accomplished photographer, and a true inspiration to me and many others. I'm excited he's here, so please help me in welcoming Jeremy Scott. Hey, are you totally committed? Are you playing full out? Are you all in? Hi, my name is Robert Brass, and this is the Go All In Podcast. Join me as we explore amazing stories of success, heartache, and absolute triumph by those who have gone all in. I'm glad you're here, so let's get to it and do whatever it takes to go all in and create the life of your dreams. Well, good day, Jeremy. Welcome to the Go All In Podcast, mate. It's great to have you here. Absolute pleasure. All right, I'd like to start off with all of my guests with a little get-to-know-you quiz. It helps warm us up, calms the nerves down a little bit. And for those folks that are listening, they might get to learn something about you that they don't already know. It's pretty random in no particular order. Just tell me the first thing that comes to mind. You ready? First thing that comes to mind. It's a cracking day out here in Brisbane when I look outside. So all right, all right. Hold on, hold on. Here's the questions, all right? Do you prefer the beach or the bush, mate? Bush. Cold weather or warm weather? Warm. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah, when I've, I've, I've ridden in minus 20 degrees. Don't want to do that again in my life. <laughs> Once is enough, right? Or well, a couple of days of that, I'm sure. Do you prefer the city or the country? Country. No, no question. After all of that, man, do you still ride a bike? Come on. It took me a while. Yeah, I wasn't in a hurry to get back on the bike. But, uh, yeah, it's, it's therapeutic for me. So, eventually, I did get back into my little... Place of meditation, I guess. Yeah, very nice, very nice. After all of that, again, I got to, I got to ask that question. Can you sing? Horribly. You should. Oh, it's my. I cannot sing. Honestly, I'm terrible. Did you sing to yourself while you're out the road? I did, and the thing is, you come up with the worst songs. <laughs> so the song I could not get out of my head was the theme, the theme tune to the Muppets. <laughs> it's, it's time to put on makeup. It's time to dress up right. And day after day, couldn't get rid of it. When you're in physical pain, your mind goes back somewhere into your, into your early years, into your youth. Yeah, clearly it's drawn me back to some Muppets on a TV screen when I was a little kid. Funny, funny. Cool, cool. So can you play an instrument? Uh, musically, inept. Now, well, to be honest, I say I can't play, but I've never tried. Oh, right, right. Are you interested yeah. in learning how to play the guitar or the piano or something? Yeah, I'd love to, love to. But yeah, I just, I just haven't uh, given myself, made the effort to give it a go. Nice, nice. My, I grew up uh, and my brother played the guitar really well. 
and I always wanted to play the guitar, but every time I picked it up, I realized how hard it was and he was really good at it and it just made it seem so much harder. So I think the trick to learning something like that is to do it really incrementally and, and do it slowly like that. So tell me who was, uh, who is the biggest influence in your life when you're out on the road, you're riding, you're doing your thing. Is there something that kind of sticks out in your mind? Is there somebody that inspires you that influences you? I think there are, there's just a number of different people, I guess. I think about all those people in my life who have inspired me through whatever it is they do in their lives. And it could be uh, something that's not of interest to me. But if you think about these people and you think, well, they're doing what they are really well and they've made a go of it, then maybe I can get through this tough day. So, yeah, there are a number of different people I just use as a, a source of inspiration, I guess, when I wasn't in the right frame of mind or physically not feeling great, just to give me that little push. Nice, nice. And a standard podcasting question. If you, if you could go back in time and spend 10 minutes, just 10 minutes with anybody, who would you go and visit and what would you say to them? To be honest, I would say it would have to be my grandmother. Oh, nice. Yeah, so, you go yeah, see Nana. Yeah. What would you say to Nana? <laughs> just I wish I had given you more time when you were here, Grandma. I always, I always think that's an interesting response. I'd go way, way back to when they were like in their 20s and running a mark and run and right because they would have run a mark and run right just like we did. I have absolutely no doubt about that, knowing my grandma. And it's quite funny to think about it because you've only, you know, as a, as a kid, you know your grandparents as being a little bit older, but you don't really think of them like that. It'd be cool to see that as well. <laughs> Sometimes well, maybe a- you don't want to. Yeah, maybe not. Maybe not, right? It's a little bit of fun to kick off the show there. Jeremy, thank you for sharing that with us, mate. Really appreciate it. Will people come over to the Go All In podcast to learn more about others that have gone all in? So if you could, mate, and I know this is going to be epic, could you please share with us your biggest Go All In story or stories and the lessons that you've learned from your commitment to success? Yeah, well, I think the the big one for me, the standout for me was, was years ago I was living in London. And I had spent my life coming up with different ideas, thinking of different things I wanted to do in my life. And I'd always craved the challenges. I wanted something that would create memories when I'm an old man, things that would make me smile spontaneously. And I started to come up with all these different ideas. And to be honest, I did nothing about them. I I chickened out and told myself I wasn't good enough. And over time, I realized I was making excuses. And this started to frustrate me. And then eventually, I just had a day in London where I read some articles about some different people who had completed these little bike rides in different parts of the world. And all of these stories appealed to me for completely different reasons. And being quite greedy, I thought, well, do I have to do just one of those? Can I not do more? (laughs) And the first one was in Europe, second one, Southeast Asia, third one, outback Australia. And then I thought, well, I want to do all three, but how do I link them together? Because they're so far apart. And I lay there in my bed in London that night and I was thinking, well, I have to get home one day. Do I have to fly? (laughs) Maybe I can get on a bike and ride home. (laughs) So suddenly I'll be home shortly. Yeah. (laughs) I'm on my way. (laughs) Is that literally the thought process? You just thought, do I have to fly home? And you just thought, well, I'll just ride my bike. That was it. It was like, well, yeah, I want to do all three of these trips. How do I link them together? And I thought, well, there, that ride would create those memories. It would give me that challenge I'd craved in life. And it just all fell into place. All those little boxes 
I thought I needed to tick suddenly were there. And it's like, that's it. I'm riding home. How old were you when you decided to commit to that? So when I, ooh, so trying to do the math. So I come up with the idea in 2004. So I was 31 when I come up with the idea. And it wasn't until I was 38 that I finally hopped on the bike and set off. Gosh, so you were, you were contemplating that for a long time. Yeah, it was. It wasn't meant to have taken that long, but <laughs> I stayed in the, decided to stay in the UK for a few more years to, so I could apply for the British passport, mm-hmm. which opened more doors with employment, et cetera, et cetera. And then I was about to set off in 2010, but I ruptured my anterior cruciate ligament playing nice. soccer. So after a knee reconstruction, the rehab, it was another year before I finally set off. So it was delayed for reasons I didn't imagine when I came up with the idea. So like everybody in life, I've planned many different things and I've done lots of physical activity. I've done a couple of bike rides as well, which I thought were pretty good. But when I put them against the scale of yours, it looks like some kindergarten thing. Which is, you know, it's all, it's all relative. It, it, it was hard when I did it. It was like I rode my bike from Brisbane to Sydney and then from Melbourne to Adelaide as well. Yep. And Good man. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was pretty decent. While, while I was in the Navy, it was like a, a PR flag-waving exercise thing, which is really cool because you go all these country towns, you wear uniform, we raise a lot of money for charity. And it was just a, it was a really great experience. And it's exactly what you described in terms of creating memories, makes you smile when you think about it. And it kind of makes you cringe at the same time about how saddle sore you get from that stuff and, and how painful it is. But I was, the, the question I was going to ask is that everybody in life has done things that are physical and have thought about going and doing activities like that. And the anticipation of that is really exciting and it's the adventure and all of the, all of the beautiful, fantastic things that happen. But the reality of it can be pretty brutal when you kick off right how were those first couple of days that must have been hard man oh you've nailed it absolutely nailed it where you're you're planning it you're learning about these different countries their culture their history it's all just so exciting you think this is just going to be this incredible adventure (laughs) then you you wake up that first morning and you realize i'm not going to be in this bed again i am not going (laughs) to I'm not going to see my family and friends for years. And suddenly you think, what am I doing? I've got no idea what I'm in for. And, and I lay there. Honestly, I had the sheets over my head and I'm trying to go back to sleep as if it was just a big dream. But then I thought, I have spent years telling all my mates what I'm going to do. I've got to go. I have to go. And yeah, the first few days, first few weeks, physically and mentally, I was struggling. I wasn't a happy boy. I felt lonely. I felt alone. I questioned what I was doing. So I guess to try and deal with that, I started to break it down into smaller sections, not think about riding from London to New Zealand and think, right, just get to Amsterdam. Well, first of all, get from London to Canterbury. See if you can do that. How far was it in the first leg? Uh, 20 k's longer than it needed to be because I got lost. (laughs) It's like you're you're an hour into the trip and you're like... Am I really sure I want to do this? I've got a sore butt already. <laughs> that was it. I was absolutely broken that first day. It happens yeah, to me on a daily basis when I put my shoes on and think, oh, I'll just go out the front here and go for a little jog. I'm like 10 minutes into the jog going, really? I'm not training for anything. I don't have to do this anymore. And your mind, your yeah. mind gets in the way, right? But you, you push through. And tell me about pushing through when you come up against that in, in the front end of the, the trip there. Yeah, well, that was it. Like, so, yeah, the first day, it was just like, mate, just try to get to Canterbury. And I told myself, look, if you, if you wake up the next day, because I was questioning what I was doing, 
And I thought, look, if you wake up the second day, you're not happy. At least now you can tell yourself you gave it a go, which mm -hmm. you couldn't have done in the past. But then I woke up in Canterbury and I could barely get my leg over the bike. I was absolutely wrecked. But I could say, well, you've made it from London to Canterbury. Now try to get to Dover. Mm. So it was just, yeah, really breaking into those small sections. And when I got to Dover, I would say, well done, mate. You're now heading out of England. Now think about France. And then I'm not looking back. I'm only worried about what's coming up in front. Yeah, you, you reach like a point where there's no point in looking back. Oh, well, I'm on my way. I've, I might as well keep going, right? Yeah. Well, listen, you haven't got time to look back because you're worried about what's coming up in front. You think <laughs> that's what I've got to focus on. Were you on a clock? Uh, I started, yeah. I thought it was going to be about a year and a half journey, mm -hmm. but uh, it took me two years and seven months. So I failed miserably as far as that clock went. <laughs> were, you, were you on a clock like to get from point A to point B on a daily basis to make accommodation and things like that? Like in Europe, that must have been tricky. You've got to go and stay somewhere, obviously. Yeah, uh, well, I had my tent with me. So I carried my oh, tent. There's a lot of free camping. Yeah. Uh, so that gave you quite a bit of freedom. Mm -hmm. But yeah, at the start, it was I thought I was on a clock because of that overall schedule. I need to be here to stay on time. But I quickly learned, I've been meeting people along the way and you're having all these great conversations. And they say, look, we're going to this lake for a few days. Come with us. And I'd be going, no, nah, I can't because I have to be here to stay on time. Mm -hmm. And I'd wake up that night camping in a forest and I'd be thinking, did I really need to be here? And I thought, no, I didn't. I could have been with those people. Mm -hmm. So I started to slow down a bit and just enjoy those moments, enjoy those conversations and just see where the journey took me naturally. And then it started to fall into place when I did that. Now that's, that's a way to have an adventure. Yeah. And that's what I learned. I learned it's not about getting from A to B. Yes, that can be your overall goal, but mm. it's all those little moments in between, which are what make a journey like this so beautiful. Yeah. You know, my missus and I, we always talk about going on holidays and doing things and in, in the modern world where you've got, jobs and responsibility and you've got to be places and do things and earn money. It's a very different way to, you think you're having an adventure when you go away for two weeks, but you're just not, you're kind of, you're really picking up your life and taking your life somewhere else and just rushing around like a maniac. And my idea of a real holiday is to go and park up in a foreign country somewhere and just stop there for three or four months. That's the way I want to go on holidays because then you can kind of put roots down there and you can meet people and have experiences there rather than a fly in, fly out, you know, a thousand miles an hour and then come back and need a rest from your holiday. That's just not the, not the way to do it. And what you're describing is a, is a real adventure that's very, very cool. Had that been your experience as well? Uh, without a doubt. And it is, it's, it's all those people you meet. And if you take the time to learn about their lives, their culture, the way they live, it just broadens your knowledge and it, it gives you a far better insight into these different people, their races, their, uh, their culture, their religions, and you become far more tolerant and understanding and, and you start to absorb things from their way of life. Think, I like that. I really like that. I'll mm -hmm. take that on board and mm -hmm. I'll try and use that with what I do in my life. Yeah, that's beautifully, beautifully said. And I think that anybody that has done similar sort of traveling as you would echo that loud and clear. Tell me about your bike because people will think, you know, this guy rode his bike from, from here to there. He's got all of this equipment. It's all fancy and it's, you know, what do you picture in your mind's eye? Do I picture a mountain bike? Do I picture a road bike? Do I picture a hybrid or something? Tell, can you tell the listeners what your bike was, what it looked like? And, you know, it's not just riding a bike. You've got to hump your life 
with you at the same time, right? So that's kind of something different altogether again. Absolutely. It's, it's a, the, bike, the bike is designed for long-distance touring. So it's a, a touring bike. You don't see a lot of them in bike shops because they're generally custom-made and specifically designed for long-haul travel. And it's probably got a frame. When you look at the frame, it looks probably more similar to a mountain bike because it's very strong, robust, but it doesn't have the shocks. It didn't have, my bike didn't have disc brakes. And it had a, and it's like the idea with the shocks, it's very difficult to have a, when you've got the bags on the front of the bike where the shocks have got movement, but you need a rigid frame to be able to attach that rack mm-hmm. to the front of the bike. And I just went with the normal just V-brake inserts, the rubber rubber yep. pad inserts. Old school. Because I knew I could source those anywhere in the world. Yeah, absolutely. Stand, yeah, standard 26-inch wheels. Yep. Because if I blew a rim or blew a tire, I could more likely to get inner tubes, tires, wheel rims anywhere in the world. Mm-hmm. And it's just it was the bike, the brand of bike is called Koga. It's a Dutch company. And they do they custom make great touring bikes. Aluminium frame, which was that's a big decision for a touring bike because most touring bikes are steel frame. Steel, right. Because yeah. if they crack in the middle of nowhere under all that weight, you can get it welded. Mm. Uh, but I'd read enough about this Koga bike to have confidence in it. And when I decided to go with it, I asked the, the bike manufacturers, I said, look, I've got no idea uh, how many spare spokes should I take. So I, I've never done anything like this. And he said, look, you probably won't need any spare spokes. And I thought, uh, do you understand I am riding from London to New Zealand? Like, is this clear? <laughs> and he said, do you understand? I just said, you do not need any spokes. Am I clear? <laughs> And he said, the only way you're going to break a spoke on one of our wheels is if you get hit by a truck. Right. He said, if you can give me a call, let me know if a broken spoke is your biggest concern. <laughs> and I didn't break a spoke in 52,000 Ks. Wow. The bike was phenomenal. You know, it went, when I was kind of researching you before this podcast, I thought one of the biggest all-in things is the trip, of course. That's, that's, the, that's the collective of everything. But the planning for something like this, you've got to be all-in on virtually every single aspect of planning what equipment you're going to take how you're going to do it where you're going the route all of those things but probably the biggest one that stood out for me was your hardware was the actual bike itself and the reliability of it and being able to do that and day in day out and what happened in the end did it ride for fifty-two thousand kilometers and not break surely it broke along the trip there not once in fifty-two thousand k's did it break down where i couldn't actually ride the bike so i had the only problems i had was a I had a frayed gear cable in Southeast Asia, just mm-hmm. made it difficult to change the gears. And I've got an internal hub gearing system. So all the gears are inside the rear wheel, mm-hmm. which means you've only got one chainring on the back, one chainring on the front. So very clean, very simple, uh, very easy to maintain. Mm-hmm. And that gearing system started to slip. A couple of the gears started to slip by the time I reached Australia. So I needed to have that serviced after 43,000 kilometers. But apart from that, it was just the usual maintenance you expect. Mm. So I had seven punches, and that, that was it. Uh, there were no broken spokes. Then you're just changing the brake pads where required. You go through a few chains, went through a couple of pedals. But you just replace these things, four sets of tires. So you've just got you carry your spare parts with you that you require. Mm-hmm. So I would carry one spare tire, a few inner tubes, brake cable, gear cable, brake pads, the chain, a few chain links, and then the tools you require to do that work. 
So yeah, this this bike I could not have been any happier than I was with this Koga bike. Here you go, Koga. Koga. How do you spell yeah. how do you spell Koga so people can go and look that up if they want it? K O K O G A. Cool. Well, I'll make sure there's a link in the show notes to that as well because that's very, very, very impressive, mate. It's really yeah, cool. Amazing bikes. Nice and one. You're not even paying me to say this. Uh, <laughs> but look, you know, give credit where credit's due is is what I say. It's not about giving them a plug or something like that. But gosh, the reliability and, and what you did for a couple of years like that. Tell me the hardest part about riding a bike for me anyway, in my experience and the people that I know, and I, I know a lot of people that have done a lot of triathlon and, and a lot of cycling and stuff, just because that's the circles that I hang out in, is being saddle sore and your fitness is fairly limited. Did you reach a point a couple of weeks in where your fitness had caught up and you started to find yourself in a bit of a groove and, hey, man, this is actually starting to be enjoyable and I don't have a sore butt or sore legs anymore and I'm, I'm starting to see the scenery a bit more? That, that was literally seeing the scenery was the moment I realized I was getting fitter. Because mm. the first few weeks, I'm just riding along. I'm looking at nothing more than the white line. It's hard on the, on the road. Really yeah, hard. your head's down. You're just yeah. grafting away, and that's it. You're, you're tired. You're sore, and you're thinking, "Well, I'm not actually seeing anything. I'm in pain. My butt. It's in a place of pain that I've never been before." <laughs> I'm thinking, "Why am I doing it?" And then, yeah, a couple of weeks into it, I'm suddenly looking at the view, and I'm thinking, "I'm getting fitter. I'm yeah. starting to enjoy it now." And then, yeah, so it didn't take long for the fitness level to get to a, a reasonable place. And then maybe a month, it's at a great place. After two or three months, you're at a place where it's become your nine to five. And you, you, you ride eight hours a day, you hop off the bike, you feel good. You've got energy, you're having conversations, which didn't happen at the beginning. You just get off, eat and sleep. <laughs> and that was it. Human body's amazing, right? Like... I know for me in, in the physical activity that I've done, when I was in the infantry, you, you have really big days, especially in training. You, you're up at like, I don't know, 4.30 or 5 o'clock in the morning or something and you march your way to some army music in the background to a mess and you, you stuff the food down your neck as fast as you can and then you're out for the day and you, you're not back till sort of 6 or 7 o'clock and you're so damn tired. And you're just like your head here. You know, when I look back at some of my training, I can't even remember it. It's like it's like I drank too much and blacked out. But it's just because I was just so physically stuffed from it. But after a little while, as you say, you kind of you lift your head up and you're like, hey man, this actually starts to be pretty good and I start to feel a little bit better. Did you did you have that experience on the front end as well, where you were just completely smashed? Yeah, and that was it. Just every day, all I wanted to do was get off the bike, eat, and then shut my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> And try to forget that day. <laughs> and, and, then, and then wake up yeah. again and go, oh my God, I've got to do it again. Yeah. And then you try to get out of bed and you think, oh, I can hardly walk, let alone ride 100 so Ks. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's just impossible. Now, now I've spent a lot of time outside just as, a, as an Aussie kid growing up by the beach in the water and then in the military as well. I got to spend a lot of time outside and camping. And I guess in some ways the military has a, a way of taking the fun out of stuff. You know, when you're in the cold water all the time or you're jumping out of an airplane, it's cold, it's scary, it's dangerous. And then you're in the scrub, humping in in hills where there's bad guys around. Even though you're outside, it kind of takes the fun out of it. But when I look back at it now, the amount of time that I spent outside was really, really, really good for me. Connecting to nature like that and being outside all the time like that is what human beings are designed for. That's the environment that 
we're supposed to be in, not inside air-conditioned rooms with fake lights all the time. Did you find yourself early on or did it take a little while for you to get into the groove and realize how damn good that actually is? I've always, I've grown up camping and enjoying the outdoors. So I've always loved that side of it. But when it becomes your life, where every morning you're waking up to the first thing you hear as you're starting to wake up is the sound of birds or the sound of insects. Mm-hmm. And it's just incredibly liberating to wake up that way and you walk outside and you're, you're eating breakfast with your feet in a river or something like that. It's just, it's so beautiful to just not think you're being governed by that little thing ticking on your wrist. Yeah. And you wake up, you just savor the right, just simple things, the rising suns, setting suns, and just, yeah, to just surround yourself in that nature. And you wake up some mornings, you've got this beautiful vista. You might be looking at mountains or a river or a lake, and it's silent apart from the sound of animals or the wind and the trees. And you're thinking, this is why I'm doing this trip, is to have these little moments where you think, this is what life's about, just just savoring those beautiful things that we do have on this planet. It's a very, it has a lot of romance associated with it. When you kind of describe it like that, it sounds very romantic, but there's no real other way to describe it other than it just feels bloody good to be outside and to be doing that. I always say the the military is the best and worst time of your life all at the same time, all in the same minute from minute to minute. Because it's exactly what you're describing. You're outside and, man, I'm in the mountains. My God, look where we are. I'm like, and then some idiot shout at you in the background telling you to pack your gear and get going. It's like, it kind of ruined, you just ruined it for me, man. I was just having a moment over here with my mates. It was like really cool. I was drinking a brew. Was, <laughs> but we've all, we've all experienced those sorts of things. Tell me about the, the route that you took. You, you went from England, obviously, over to France and then up through the Netherlands, I heard you, you mention. And where did you go through there? Did you come down to Africa? Which way did you go? Yeah, so from went through about 12 countries in Europe, uh, made my way down through to Bulgaria, and then from there into Turkey, mm-hmm. into Iran, Central Asia. So what Central Asia consisted... Were, what year was that when you were kind of crossing over into those Middle Eastern countries? That was 2012. Okay. So at that, at that stage in Syria, there were a lot of protests between the, the government and the locals. So at that point, I hadn't really heard of ISIS. We're not yeah, in a full-scale conflict, all the carry-on that went on there or anything like that. That's before that. Yeah, yeah. I think at that, if I'd have known better at that stage, I probably would have ridden through northern Iraq into the mm. Kurdish area, which mm. at the time was stable. And Kurdish hospitality is renowned for just being incredible. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, now, now I couldn't take that route. But, yeah, so from yeah, Turkey into Iran, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Kyrgyzstan, China, South Korea, Japan back to China, Southeast Asia, Australia, New Zealand. So you went from, let me back up there a little bit, you went from Turkey to Iran. What are the yep. dudes on the border in Iran say? There's, a dude, there's an Aussie guy here on his bike. He wants to come in. I'm just putting myself there as, as the sentry there, standing there with my AK with my mates going, what do we say to this dude? <laughs> uh, yeah, it was, it, was, it was actually embarrassing when I got to the border. Because when, uh, when I arrived there, there was a huge queue of trucks and they're going through the trucks looking for contraband, whether it be imported carpets or imported tea, all of these highly volatile sort of... People uh, trying to live their lives, right? Yeah, yeah. And I got there and there was, it was freezing in that part of the world. Like when I arrived at the border, it might have been minus 10. There was snow, ice everywhere. 
And I turned up, there was a massive queue of people queuing up to be having their passports checked. I thought, oh, this is going to take forever. And a guy from the military, he saw me, starts walking towards me with a big gun on his back. He looks at me, he's like, you, come out. I thought, oh, here we go. And he made me walk into this room, shut the door. I thought, brilliant, it's interrogation time. <laughs> and he came back two minutes later with a stamp, stamps my passport, says, welcome to Iran. I hope you enjoy my country. Oh, beautiful. That was <laughs> yeah, and I, yeah, and I turned around and looked at all these other people who have been queuing in the snow and ice. I'm like, I am sorry. Like, you know, I didn't ask for this. And they're just giving me the death glare. It's like, you it foreigners. It doesn't, it doesn't matter what country in the world, what culture you're from. Nobody likes a queue jumper, Jeremy. No. <laughs> no. I, felt, I felt utterly embarrassed, but I wasn't going to turn it down when it was minus 10. <laughs> so, so you ride on from the border in, in Iran. Did you, you must have kind of like, oh, well, that was, that was easy. I wasn't expecting that. Because the media in the West portray Iran as this crazy place where it's really not very welcoming, but it's just like any other country. Um, is, that, is that right? Am I right in saying that? It is, without a doubt, the best place I've ever been in my life. Yeah, cool. And, yeah, look, I've read so many amazing things about traveling in Iran. Mm -hmm. And obviously not through mainstream media. It's through tr travel blogs. You read from other people who have been there and you hear these incredible stories about the hospitality and the kindness of the locals. So I, I did have massive expectations when I went there, but those expectations were just blown out of the water. Just, I was, I just lost the words when I think about the kindness I did receive inside that nation. Just amazing place. Do people think you're crazy when you kind of rock up and they're like, hey, where are you from? And you speak with a, with a Kiwi accent or an Aussie accent, you kind of get mixed up with those two things there and they're not, they're not really sure which one. They're not sure. And then you say, hey, I'm riding my bike from here to here. And they go, you're doing what? Well, tell me, <laughs> tell me about some of the reactions there. Because my reaction is that as well. And I'm sitting here in, like, you know, at my desk thinking that. I wonder what people on the other side of the planet are thinking. Well, some people, it does, you could tell them 50 times and they cannot get their head around the idea you're riding from London to New Zealand. It's just not, it's not feasible. So I'm, I, was, I was in China and I was trying to explain to a guy, like, yeah, I've ridden from uh, London to to a place called Zhang Zhaozhai in China. And he's like, but where did you fly to? There's none of, I've cycled from London to here. Said, but did you fly to Shanghai, to Beijing? Said, no, I've cycled all the way. And he, he just couldn't understand it. Yeah. But when I said, okay, I flew from London to Beijing and I've cycled a few hundred kilometers, he's like, what? No way! Yeah. You cycled 200 kilometers, amazing! <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and, and he was blown away by that. He just couldn't, he just could not grasp the idea of what it was I was doing. Yeah, I think the immediately when you kind of hear what you did, your mind goes to geography and your mind goes to maps and where France is in relation to the Netherlands and where all of these other countries are in relation to each other and then how to get there. Did you have a map with you when you were doing that? When you're going, oh man, I'm getting somewhere now? Or how did you know which way to go for heaven's sake? You just follow the signs? Yeah, I, Tyrone, I, got, I got lost. I got lost a lot. Yeah, did you? Right? And, yeah, yeah. But at the start, I, I was getting flustered when things didn't. When I was making wrong turns, but I would be meeting people that I wouldn't have met otherwise. And you're having all these beautiful moments which you wouldn't have had if you went the right way. Yeah, so right. I, so I then started thinking, well, I'm just taking a route today which I didn't expect I would be. Yeah. And and when I looked at that way, it was it became fun. And yeah, I, I started with a GPS. But I decided to get rid of the GPS 
because it took out the human element. So with paper, so with a GPS, you can pinpoint a location in an alleyway in the middle of Beijing, yeah. and you will get there without a problem. But you don't speak to a single person because yeah. you don't have to. So when you've got paper maps, you have to stop, you have to ask, and then the next minute you're dancing in a wedding or you're teaching English in a little <laughs> village in the middle of nowhere, and you're having all these amazing encounters you do not have because of the technology. So yeah, I just went with paper maps and. You could either source them through good uh, travel shops along the way or order them on the internet. So I didn't want to carry all the maps with me I required. Too much. You get, you get them as I required. Once you've used them, you got rid of that weight. Uh, if like A map doesn't weigh much, but when you're riding uphill and your legs are screaming, you think, I don't need it now. Bye-bye. It's gone. <laughs> so, yeah, just, just paper maps to get around. Humanity is everywhere or virtually everywhere on this planet and you, there's people wherever you go but you must have been in some really super remote locations did you ride mostly on the bitumen or was it a lot of dirt and scrub as well there's quite a bit of dirt and scrub and that was it you, when you slow down and you have those conversations with the locals like you're never you're never going to learn about those dirt tracks when you're doing your research back home mm. but it's when you speak to locals you're like look there's a little path that follows the river that will eventually get to this town where you can get food and water. Take that, far more scenic. You'll find a great place to camp. So yeah, you take that local knowledge and then you'd meet somebody else down, down there and they would send you on another path. So yeah, yeah, there was a lot of it that was off, off road, looking for just quiet places. And that was it. When you know you're out in the middle of nowhere, you'd be able to camp safely without worrying about someone lurking around your tent at night and worrying mm. about your safety. Mm -hmm. Break your stereotype for me here and tell me about an incredible moment in a run. Uh, how, how long we got, my friend? No. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's I a podcast you... as long as we want. It's a rabbit hole. <laughs> we go all the way down. <laughs> yeah, I, I could give you hundreds of beautiful experiences. If I give you give you one, I was riding out of Tehran, uh, riding towards riding south in a sandstorm, and this car pulls over. And the guy gets out, he's trying to ram my car, my bike, into his car so he could take me to his village. And I'm like, this isn't happening. What are you he, doing? He's trying to insist on it. And um, like, eventually he got the idea. He's like, well, I'm not putting my bike in your car. So I said, look, I'm going to ride. And he had a look at my map and he saw his village on the map. He's like, ah, that's me. I, I live there. Mm -hmm. I was like, all right. So I said, me ride to your village. He's like, far, far. Mm -hmm. Long way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And again, yeah, he didn't understand I'd ridden from London to there. So I could cope with the next 40 kilometers. And so eventually he understood I wasn't going with him. So he drove ahead. He sat on the side of the road in a sandstorm and waited for me. Oh, wow. And I turned up two, two hours later. He stood up, calls me to join him, takes me into a little, like a little shop that sold like sort of local delicacies and things like that. And the moment he introduced me to the owner, he then left. So he had done his job, was to sit in a sandstorm and wait for me. And then the owner took over, just prepared a lot, lot of food. He took me down the road to get some food from a market, went to a bakery, he got me some cakes, took me to his brother's barber shop. Because <laughs> I, you need I had to be this tied up, man. You're looking a bit scruffy, yeah? <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, that was it. Because like, I had this big beard, and I thought that would give me a bit of respect in Iran. Yeah. I thought, yeah, a bit of kudos. But it was the complete opposite. Yeah. Because 
the generally the people with the, uh, the big beards are sort of the the more some of the fanatics, I guess. The bad and guys. So, yeah, so much more, so many more people in Iran are very clean shaven, and they're saying, "Look, we're we're clean shaven because we're we're not like that." Mm-hmm. And so they'll try and say, "No, you get rid of that beard." It's like, Ooh, okay. And then I'm taking him to the I'm into the family home. I'm sitting there watching wedding videos. Next morning, down to more shops, down to the bakeries, down to the markets. And I'm thinking, mate, I've got to carry this stuff on my bike. Stop buying me food. <laughs> <laughs> and and then at the end of it, he just shakes my hand and carries on with his day. And he, he didn't want any kudos. He just wanted to look after me. And his wife, like this guy couldn't speak any English, but his wife could. And she said, look, all my husband would like would be if you could just send us a message every now and again to let us know you're okay and you still love your time in Iran. And Beautiful. it's just, yeah, that's just one of many examples of the extent people went to to look after me when I was in that country. So obviously you're going to write a book about all of this and you have to catalog these experiences. How do you pick which experiences to catalog for heaven's sake? That's it. You, you, you start to accumulate and you start to write down because I, yeah, I have actually written a book about it and, and you start to gather this information and you think, well, I've only got so many pages <laughs> and then you have to start, I guess, not just getting, cutting out certain stories, but then trying to simplify certain mm. stories. And yeah, for me, another tough thing for me as well was trying to get a nice balance to cover the entire journey. Because for me, I wanted to write about so many of those moments I had in places like Iran, but then I'd have to limit other places to get that balance. So that was quite challenging for me to, to do that, not just about the stories, but also, I guess, the images. Because you always have certain places that are far more scenic, beautiful, or just different to what you're used to. And it's hard not to try and favor those areas and just try to get that overall balance, which represents the journey as a whole. Yeah, it's a hard thing to try and encompass, isn't it? Because it's an experience that lasted for a couple of years. It wasn't just like a couple of weeks. So how do you, how do you stuff a couple of years into just a, a book that people can digest and don't get bored of and they're interested in and they want to keep coming back as well? When I look at your website, there's some pretty epic photos on the homepage there. One particular that stood out to me is you're, you're in the desert your shirts off and then you kind of got your arms outstretched for the, for the people listening. Obviously you can't see that, uh, but there's these mountains in the background and it's incredible. Then there's another picture of you with a close up of, of your good looking face and your beard with all of this. Like I, I looked at it and I'm like, man, that's a close up picture of him. That's a bit odd to put on the, on a, and I looked and there's like all ice in your beard and stuff like that. Are, are there some iconic photos that you look at and go, Oh man, that was one tough day. Cause you look pretty, pretty sore and sorry in a couple of those images mate yeah that was it you do you do have some really tough days and and for me as i mentioned earlier i prefer the cold or the heat mm. it's like yeah give me the heat any day probably because i had nightmares in my time in eastern turkey yeah where i was riding in minus 20 degrees centigrade at night it was dropping to minus 40 That's and it's really just, cold hey it's hard to understand how cold that is when you haven't experienced it it's absolutely brutal, and in the in the cold, your fingers don't work. Yeah. Trying to do your zipper, or trying to like light, just use your lighter to start cooking your food. Mm. Trying to hold a hammer so you can put your pegs in with your tent. Your shoelace comes undone. You've got to take off three sets of gloves so you can try and tie your shoelace up again. And then your hands are colder, and it takes longer to get the gloves back on. <laughs> so just 
everything in that cold was absolute misery. So yes, those photos where I've got ice hanging off my face, they, they were really, really tough days. I wasn't enjoying it. But in hindsight, you think they are the days which help shake you as a human being. Mm-hmm. And if it was all rosy, nice and easy, I wouldn't be as resilient now uh, if I hadn't have had those experiences. So you've always got to just, I guess, take those positives from the bad days because they, they challenge you, they make you uncomfortable, make you unhappy. But when you get through it, you've then got this next marker and you think, right, if I can get through that, I know I can do it again and maybe just a little harder. So it just creates those, those markers which help you move forward in life. One of the really interesting things, again, about researching you on the, on the front end, watching a couple of videos, you're really down to earth. You know, I, I picked that up here. You're kind of really easy to talk to. You're happy to share your story. It's really, it's kind of very fun to talk to you as well. Um, you're just an ordinary guy, right? And you took, you took on this extraordinary task and this extraordinary feat, and you just took it one day at a time. Did you know that you were capable of something so big? No, not even close. And, um, and it was like for years, I come up with ideas, but talk myself out of them. I said, look, you, you've never done anything like it. You're not good enough. And I just realized I had been doing that for so many years. And I thought, I'm just going to try it and give it a go. And yes, when I set off, I was overwhelmed, lonely, because I'm, I'm thinking of this. I'm thinking big picture. Mm. And, and just to get over that, I said, look, just, yeah, I said, get to Canterbury. Just break it down to those much smaller sections. And when you deal with that, you get through the first day, you think, okay, I can do two days. And then when you do two days, you think, I can do four days. I can then do eight days. And suddenly your belief is growing. And yeah, prior, prior to this journey, I, I didn't understand the potential we all have as human beings. And I think having completed the journey, I'm starting to understand that now. For me, there's this light there that shows me that I am so much more capable than I ever dreamed possible. And a lot of people say to me, they say, look, I've been for this, like yourself, you say, look, I've been from from Brisbane to Sydney, Sydney to Adelaide, whatever, and think, mate, I've I've never done anything like that. And it's just time. And what people do in a week-long bike ride is the hardest part of my bike ride. It's Mm. that first week. The first week. And (laughs) And then you stop. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. and that's it. And then, yeah, that's, that's the hardest part is getting out your front door, taking that first step and giving it a go. So for me, the big hurdles for this was one, quitting my job, just packing everything in and get, walking out the front door and just taking that leap of faith and saying, I'm going to give it a crack to see what happens. Yeah, well, that's beautifully said. And, and you said my favorite word amongst all of that as well. In the goal in philosophy, it's about potential. And for me, I, I wanted to create a podcast where I could tell other people's incredible stories like yours to draw a bit of inspiration. And I believe when I really, you don't think, you probably have never thought of this before or, and the people listening probably don't, there's no reason for you to think about this. But when I created the goal in philosophy, it's not mine. That's a, that's a catch cry of the modern world. You know, people say, I'm going to get all in on black and hopefully they come up red or black. And hopefully it's black, you know, it's been around forever. But when you go all in on something, it means you, you're going to try as hard as you can and you're going to go as hard as you can and you're going to give it your very best shot. And I believe when you give something your best shot, when you go all in on it, you make the commitment to do that, you're living up to your potential now because that word potential is a future tense. It has, so what's the potential of this investment? What's, what is your potential in life? What will you potentially do? It's always in a future tense. But when you decide to go all in and you go as hard as you can, you're living up to your potential 
right now. Why do you think, Jeremy, people don't live up to their potential right now, mate? Yeah, one, I think it's the, the lack of self-belief. Yeah, I think it's, you know, I, I can't do this, I can't do that. People are scared of making mistakes. Mm-hmm. And they think they see if they make mistakes, they're, they're a failure. And I think, no, no, no. That you're, I, think, I think failure is not having the courage to try things. And, yeah, so, and that's why I look at it. And I think, yeah, and it's just about, yeah, I think to be, your potential is basically, yeah, as you said, it's all about now. It's in, it's in this moment and just making the most of this moment you are in at that present time and just letting, letting the journey evolve and just not having all these preconceived ideas of how it has to happen. Uh, just accept that you don't need all the answers. Let the journey evolve and see what happens. Well, and, and that's for me was, for me, it's like I'm comfortable now not knowing what's happening down the road. I'm just happy, just happy to give, give life a good crack for what it is right now today. and have faith that thing, doors will open, things will happen, and have the confidence to walk through that door and see what happens from there and just let the journey of life evolve. That's beautifully said, mate. Thank you for sharing that. And just in half an hour, 40 minutes of talking to you here, you've given me a really fun reference point and I've, I've got a huge takeaway. And I get, I get a bit selfish on these podcasts because I get stuff out of it myself and I get to ask the questions and other people are just listening to it, right? So. The, the, the funny thing that you said is you went on a couple of detours and you went the wrong way and you got lost. That's a, that's a huge reference point for me because I can really relate to that. That's a mistake. You know, I went left instead of going right or I should have gone straight, whatever it might be. And I'm 50 Ks off track now. You know, next time I think about making a mistake, if something goes wrong, it's not like being 50 Ks that way, the wrong way and another 50 Ks back to get back on track. So that's a, that's a kind of a fun reference point you're giving me. So I really appreciate that. I'm not going to go too much further on on the trip because I want people to go to your website and to read your book and hear more about that and find more about you online. But what I did see when I was doing that research is one of the things that you had to overcome was the fear of public speaking. And the first thing I see when I get to your website is all of the list of engagements of speaking. I'm like, man, this guy is epic. He's got this trip under his belt. Now he's overcome that field. Tell me about that challenge of public speaking and overcoming that. Is it harder? Yeah. Like everything, the more you do it, the easier it becomes. Yeah. And yeah, people are probably listening to this podcast now and go, whatever, he won't shut up. <laughs> but, but, but yeah, look, growing up prior to the bike ride, uh, an example, I was at my parents' wedding anniversary. There were 10 or 15 people there and my parents just said thanks to those in attendance and I knew every single one of them and my sister gave me an elbow and she said, look, just say thanks to mum and dad uh, for what they've done for us. And I couldn't do it. I panicked and I looked at mum. I said, mum, I have nothing to say. And I walked out of the room and I literally hid out the back of the room. I was hyperventilating in the dark. I was that scared of being like the center of attention. Mm-hmm. And another mate of mine got engaged and at his engagement party, I pulled him aside and said, mate, very happy for you, but um, don't ask me to be this man. Because <laughs> if you do that, I won't even come to your wedding. Oh, I was that was scared, scared. scared of it, properly, yeah. properly scared but, of it. But yeah, I was halfway through writing the book and I thought, oh, it's all really cool. I've got a book about this journey. And I thought, how am I going to promote it? I thought, oh no, <laughs> I've dug myself a hole. <laughs> and, it's going to end up on TV, on a podcast, <laughs> on a YouTube channel. Oh my God, that's every bit of possible media that you could ever hope for that's yeah. available to you and now you're scared of it. <laughs> yeah, and so then, then I, used, I used my bike ride. And I said, look, if you can ride a bike around the planet, you can speak to people. 
So I thought, just give it a go, accept the fact you're not going to do it perfectly at the start. You're going to make mistakes. You're going to be scared. But the more you do it, the more you'll learn from those experiences. And I now start to look at it as being, I don't look at them as being mistakes. So I think that's got a negative connotation. Yeah. I think lessons. And when you think of it in a more positive mindset, you think, okay, I've learned a lesson through that. I know how to do it better next time. And so, yeah, then again, just the more I do it, the more confident I've become. And, and I think a big reason for doing it is not just to promote my book. And just I do a lot of motivational speaking now. It's to help people understand their potential. And when, particularly when I speak to students, I say, and I said, look, it took me until I was 38 years old, until the day I set off on this journey, that I began to understand the potential I have. And I said, for you, don't wait till you're 38. <laughs> that's my main message today. Dream big, give it a go. Yeah, that's, that's, that's beautifully, beautifully said. And, and I would echo that mistake thing as well. A couple of, uh, couple of Raffies that I've interviewed on this show, a couple of Air Force guys, when they talk about training and the learning curve and the training cycle, the Air Force doesn't have the word mistake in their debriefing process. They just like... I mean, uh, that didn't go the way that we wanted it to go. Let's go back and do that again because it has that negative connotation. It plants that kind of seed in your mind of it not working properly. And, and since I've heard that a couple of months ago, I've really looked at some of the, the things that haven't gone right for me as well and just taken them as lessons learned and just move forward with them as well. So tell me uh, who you're speaking to, who's your audience? How do, we, how do we give you a little plug here? Because I'd love to come to an event and see more. Yes, I, I do a lot of, like, for, with regards to the book, I speak at a lot of libraries to promote the book. I speak at schools, love speaking to students. I think that's my passion. Mm-hmm. I do a lot of sort of, I guess, leadership work, motivational work with businesses about, I guess, setting big goals, but understanding you don't have to have all the detail in place. It's about, like, setting a big goal, then learning through the process, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. So that's it. There's a lot of, a lot of lessons that I learned throughout this process, which can be applied to anything you do in life. And, that, and I didn't understand, again, I didn't understand that before I set off. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's just so much of this journey, the lessons I learned can be applied to anything I do in life now. And that's what excites me. It's like, you just got to apply yourself, have faith in the process and just move forward, learn from those lessons. Awesome. Awesome. What's coming up in the next 12 to 18 months for you, mate? Is there another dare I say it, trip planned or is it more speaking or is it something a little bit calmer and a bit more relaxed in life? At the moment, this, I'll be very busy for the rest of the year. I'm touring around Australia, currently in Queensland, making my way out through the Northern Territory or over the Western Australia. So I'm very busy speaking this year. I've got a lot of engagements still booked in. And then basically once, my, once I've sold my books, because basically I look at my, my bike. I've got a couple of bags on my bike. And I see that and I think that's my happy place. And so at the moment, I'm decluttering. Mm. And as I get closer to that happy place, I would love to ride from the top of Alaska to the bottom of Argentina. It'd be the next big one I'd like to do. And photography's always been a massive part of my life. Yep. So I think the, a journey like that, there is so much incredible scenery all the way from the north to the south. It's just mind-boggling scenery. So I'd be taking my time looking for those beautiful places and yes, it's another big challenge, but it's a big journey made up of those beautiful little moments where you're listening to birds, you're looking at a lake, looking at these, the scenery. And so I just want to fill my days with more of those beautiful little moments. 
once you've experienced that, you forever want to go back and experience a little bit more of that. It's a little bit like aviation. Once you get bitten by that bug when you're a, when you're a kid, you're forever looking at the planes in the sky going, man, I wish I was up there doing that. It uh, sounds like the same experience for you. It's really cool. Well, yeah. Jeremy, as we wrap up the podcast here, mate, we really appreciate you sharing all of those stories. And I'm going to say that you're one of those Kiwis that we call an Aussie. I'm going to, have to, I'm going to claim oh. I'm claiming it for everyone. I don't care. You know, enough, and, enough, zip. That's it, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> and that's, yeah, some of the speaking engagements I've had here. I had one guy, he said, after the talk, he said, mate, it's amazing what you've accomplished in your life, what you've seen. Mm-hmm. You must have learned so much. He said, it's just a shame that you haven't learned to use one more vowel when you speak. <laughs> and for those people that are not Australian or Kiwis, they probably won't get it, but... We get it, so it's all it's all There's good. We'll call you an honorary Australian, but we'll let you be a Kiwi at this point. Yeah. It's all right. It's amazing, an amazing journey, mate. Amazing story. If people want to find out more about you, where can they where can they reach out to you? Yeah, just jump onto my website, which is www.jeremyscott.com.au. Instagram, uh, my little tag there at Jeremy Scott 007. And uh, yeah, those are probably the two best places to start. Awesome. Well, I'll make sure all of those links are included in the show notes. And as we wrap up here, if you haven't already subscribed to the Goal In podcast, just pop open your favorite podcasting app and hit that subscribe button for us. And if you like what you heard today in Jeremy's story, don't forget to leave us a review. Well, that's pretty much it for the show. Thanks again, Jeremy. We look forward to hearing some more stories, maybe in the future, sooner than we think. Bye for now, mate. See you soon. Absolute pleasure.